Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. The Vancouver Writers' Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. I'm Leslie Hertig, Artistic Director, and I'm very happy to share this conversation featuring Emma Donahue in conversation with Shana Lambert. Special thanks to our event sponsor, the Vancouver Film School. This event features best-selling author Emma Donahue speaking with Shana Lambert about her new book, Akin. Wow, this is a full room. <laughs> yeah, it's a really... And really it's like lovely. sitting inside a model of the solar system as well. How beautiful. <laughs> so, Emma, I brought three of your books here, but in actual fact, I read probably six of them. Plus, I watched Room twice. And, wow. you know, it was all such a feast. It was a complete feast to live inside your head for the last month. Um, and I guess what I wanted to start with was a question about your philosophy of writing. Because some writers really do write what they know, and they do it really well, and that has risks. They go deep into their own lives and sort of stay there and puzzle it through. But you don't seem to be... You know, perhaps I would have done that if I knew more. But um, <laughs> I... Knew more about yourself? No, no, if I had more life experience. If I had one of these bios where it was like cattle rancher, phone salesman, you know, if I, if I had more to draw on. But I've, I've only ever written. Um, the only job I ever had was as a chambermaid and I was sacked. Um, so, honestly, I ran out of material after the first two novels. So I've been forced to range through time and space, you know, just for lack of any life experience to draw on. <laughs> to be honest... And, Emma, do you feel as though it does come with some kind of ethic around, like, writing into the skins of other people is uh, a meaningful ethical act? I do, actually, yeah. Because um, there's, there's a big emphasis on, on, you know, writing authentically from your own community, and that can be an important thing to do. But I also think um, writing books that connect people with material... That, that isn't familiar to them or that isn't easily relatable, I think that's very worth doing as well. Um, so I absolutely love getting people into the heads of the obscure in particular. So I suppose I write a lot of revisionist historical fiction where I'm saying, come with me to past times, but instead of meeting mm. you know, the cowboys in 19th century America or meeting Mark Twain, you're going to meet uh, a petty criminal who got shot in a bar and they never managed to find out mm -hmm. who did it. Um, or you know, come with me into the head of a you know, a deaf child in a 19th century Irish cottage who would go on to become a Victorian children's author. So I, I, I love leading you into the, the minds of the obscure, yeah. And also, when I write about real people, I feel a, a, a real ethical imperative to, to get it right, you know, not to misrepresent them, because mm -hmm. often they're such obscure people that there's no biography out there about them. So in a way, my fiction is having to, to work as biography, and I always give very detailed sources at the back so I can say, look you know, go find out more about them yourself or you write your own version. I don't own these people. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. It is, it's an ethically complicated business, but I do mm -hmm. feel this urge to, to sort of speak up for the dead. 
especially the unfamous dead, you know. I, I have huge admiration for people like Hilary Mantel who managed to take the famous dead and, and, and create such a fresh account mm -hmm. of them in novels like Wolf Hall. But I would find um, that overwhelming, um, you know, too many sources, too many biographies. I love a, you know, long, obscure, and preferably died young, you know. <laughs> just, and you've done that with... That's just grist to my mill. Yeah. And you did that with frog music, and you did that a lot in her, your book *Astray*, where you where you look at different, like short stories, little vignettes of people from all across time. Really, so so many different times. It's absolutely stunning how you. And do you do? Can you tell us about your research process for that? Um, I just do a huge amount of research for whatever I'm writing about. You know, my modern stuff paradoxically takes just as much research because I don't have a very good memory. So I was writing once about a flight attendant. It was basically the story of how I came to Canada, but I thought I'd give myself a different job, you know. <laughs> so I made myself very glamorous and, um, you know, hair down to here and a different job, you know. Um, you see, I get to live vicariously through my characters. But anyway, you would think, having sat on so many airplanes, I would know what flight attendants do all day, but mm. I had no idea. So I had to study blogs by an American Airlines flight attendant about all the ways in which passengers annoyed him and then I looked up complaint websites in which passengers complained about web about flight attendants so so yeah I have to I have to research everything and I just do an unlimited amount um, and it, it's never over because you you're you're always going back to check more or to generate more or to answer more queries but then of course I throw away most of it um, often um, you know, I'd be, I'd be reading one of my novels aloud and I see a one-line reference and I go, oh, that's the thing I spent a week researching. Right. You know, but it's, it's left an almost homeopathic trace, you know. Yeah. The, the one tiny little vivid detail which you wouldn't have found if you hadn't done the week's research. Right. And when you get the first seed of a book, for instance, with Room, um, can you just describe like how it falls into your mind and how you decide that it's going to be, say, a novel or a short story or um, a play? Yeah. Well, how it falls into my mind, that's a very irrational process in that I often, you know, I, I literally get a rapid heartbeat. I, mm. I hear something or, or get an idea. And I feel physically excited. It's almost like I can smell a trace and I'm a bloodhound or something. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's not a very rational business. And it's not like I'm career planning and going, oh, a novel about a locked up child, that'll sell well. I mean, believe <laughs> me, it sounded freakish. The first few people I mentioned it to looked at me like I was disturbed. So it's not some cunning career planning. And where know? did that idea, like when it came? I had heard about the Fritzl case in which a woman was, you know, locked up by her father and had seven children in a basement and you know I'd heard about that and then a few days later I was driving to an event um, I, somewhere in Ontario I'm a very nervous driver and as I was driving along I suddenly thought oh the child's point of view on that storyline that would be interesting because the child would just love having his mother there all the time unable mm. to get away from him you know every child's dream I thought and every mother's nightmare and so and um, then when I got to the event, I had to write all that down on a napkin so I wouldn't forget it. So yeah, that's where room came from. But and did you know it was? Did you when you when you had those ideas? Did you think to yourself, "There's enough here that it's a novel"? Yeah, no, that one clear, clearly was a novel. Yeah. In some cases, I've had to gradually learn that my first novel, Slammerkin, was meant to be just a short story about how a girl in 18th century Wales killed her employer with a cleaver. But I found I needed a novel 
to get you to the point where you would sympathize with that. I couldn't have her, mm. I couldn't have her picking up the cleaver after five pages. You know, that <laughs> one took a while. And again, um, I was saying to Shana that a couple of times I've written a short story about something that really is good enough material for a novel, but I didn't want to spend that long with it. So once I wrote about an 18th century Scottish cult where they all locked themselves up in a barn and <coughs> stopped eating and waited for Jesus to lift them to heaven. And I just didn't want to spend two years of my life with these people. <laughs> You know, in the increasingly fetid barn. So I made that a short story. Um, and even though I returned to the theme of, of starving with the wonder, that was a much more likable girl, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's very likable. But, but what I do like to do is really saying to myself, what form does this story want to be? So it's never, you know, oh, I will write a novel. It's more like... I'm fascinated by this idea and I think it needs to be a radio play or I think this one needs to be um, on stage. You know, I, I, I sort of ask the story what it wants. Mm -hmm. And again, if it's fiction, I ask it not only what length does it want to be, but, um, you know, what genre. I could tell, say, with frog music that, yes, I could do just a historical novel about this particular murder, but then I thought, you know, it's a waste of the material. I want it to actually be a murder mystery as well. So I try and pick the tone and the voice and the, the narrator to suit the material. And do you ever feel that you've gotten a certain ways and you've made a mistake? Oh, I make many mistakes. No, I mean the mistake <laughs> about the genre? No, actually, I don't think so. Um, I think I'm a bit better at, at guessing these things now. So, so say with that first historical novel, I think now I would have realized it needs to be a full-length novel to explain mm -hmm. why you would pick up a cleaver. Mm -hmm. Or again, my very first novel, Stir Fry, I, I wrote it, sold the novel, and then a friend of mine said the ending was wrong. And I was outraged, and I reread it, and I saw she was absolutely right. You know, A should end up with B and not C. You know, yeah. so I went back and made that change before publication. Um, so I think nowadays I would probably spot if my ending was completely wrong. So <laughs> I think yeah. I'm a bit more in charge of my material now. Yeah. But I, I still always need to, to, to tackle some new challenge with each book. It needs to be something I've never done before. Like say, you know, the last two books I did were, were for younger readers. And so I was like, oh, I'm brand new in children's fiction. I'm gonna m embarrass myself, you know. Um, it's, it's good to be in that nervous zone. And you yeah, I was wondering, I mean, do you feel as though um, tackling that new genre gives you that little ch charge that yeah, gets you going? Yeah, it's the bit of stage fright that you need yeah. to perform better, definitely. Yeah. And the last thing you should be feeling is smug. Yeah. You know, you can't be like, oh, I'll sit around on my bestseller, you know. <laughs> no, yeah. Not a bit. Um, so I don't feel pressure to, you know, sell in the same numbers as I did with Room. Room was such a one-off, but I definitely... the. I definitely feel the pressure to write something good each time. And, yeah. and the best way for me to do that is to try something new. Yeah. Um, and you, you said somewhere, and I quote you often with my students, that, that um, <coughs> when you're writing, sometimes you cheat on your novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have little things with a short story every now and then. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it, it is specifically adulterous in its psychology. Um, I'll be, you know, committed to writing the novel maybe for the next six months and maybe after three of those months I get a little bit restless and chafing and so I'll sneak off and um, write a short story or research a future novel mm. and I really have a feeling of like, don't tell the main novel. You yeah. know, <laughs> above all, I don't tell the people who I may have promised a deadline to. You know, I'll come up with my own deadlines and I'll say to yeah. my um, agent, like, you'll get the novel by Christmas so I'm not telling her that I'm writing a short story about something else. But, you know, it all keeps the juices flowing. You have to just learn how your mind works. Yeah. And so a little bit of, hmm. you know, a little bit of strange fiction-wise <laughs> yeah. just really helps. A little ex illicit excitement. Yeah, and when yeah. you do that, when you cheat on your novel, <laughs> do you tell your partner? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. No secrets from her. Yeah. yeah. Do you tell her about your work as you go? Uh, in painful detail, yes. <laughs> you know, there she is trying to, like, get the kids to eat the vegetables, and I'm describing some strange new world, and every now and then she has to say to me, sorry, sorry, is this a real thing or something you've made up? <laughs> and, of course, I've got more than one project, so often I'll yeah. be telling her a bit about three yeah. or four different projects. Um, because sometimes instead of, like, as it were, cheating with a short story, mm -hmm. I will, I'll be working alternately on two things. Um, so, so, so yes, often I've, you know, progressed on several different projects to describe, and my partner's head is just in a spin, but, you know, she's always interested, <laughs> it's just, I can be a little bit, um, prolific and, um, and loquacious on the subject of my writing. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure sometimes she wishes yeah. I was one of these enigmatic so writers who just doesn't talk about it till it's published. <laughs> So, Emma, you, I mean, you're not one of those writers who fears that they could talk away the substance of their novel. No, I understand why they might feel that way, but, but for me it's a bit like throwing down money on the gambling table. Not that I ever do that in real life, but in fictional terms, if I say, I'm writing a novel set in 10th century Japan and I will have it done by next year, it's like I'm daring myself. You know, um, so talking about that with your partner yeah, or it's your not children that I boast. is it's part not of that. that I say I'm going to write, yeah. a, you know, world-shattering mm -hmm. or best-selling novel, but but I do. I talk about it in advance. Mm -hmm. I don't put it on Twitter, right? Because yeah. then you you know, then if you don't do it, you'd look like an idiot. But I certainly talk to friends and family yeah. about it. And interestingly, I draw on my kids a huge a huge amount, um, and I tell them as I'm going along. So so my kids knew um, when I was writing my first kids book, um, the Lotteries Plus One, and I would if things happened. Like, I don't know, if one of them was doing something brave and I was meant to be videoing it and I'd forgotten to press the button and it didn't video, I'd, I'd try and make up for that by saying, oh, we'll put that in the novel. You know, so any <laughs> mistakes of mine. Um, there's a moment in Akin where the main character um, gets mugged by a seagull. You know, his panini is ripped away by a seagull. And even at the time, even in my humiliation and my hunger, you know, I was like, I'll use it in the novel. So, so my kids are quite familiar with the idea that, you know, everyday life, especially its humiliations and failures and errors, are, are all useful fuel for the fire. And my son in particular, um, in a kin, there's an 11-year-old boy who's very sort of stroppy and rude, and, and this is all borrowed from my son and accentuated. So I would sometimes <laughs> say to my son, mid-squabble, I'd say to him, oh, I'm going to use this for the boy in the book. And occasionally he would be distracted from his bad behavior <laughs> by sort of editorializing it and saying, oh, well, you know what the boy in the book should do? And he'd push it a bit farther. So really, my, my kids are co-creators of these characters. Mm. You know? so, so your son is now... Is he's he, now 15, because he's 15, you know, boys grow up faster than novels do. But he was... <laughs> The, he was really the basis for he Michael. He was the boy in the in rug. We had a, a, a rug like this, but smaller, very shabby in the place we were staying. And um, yeah, when he was four, I, I bribed him with a pan au chocolat to roll up in the rug and see could oh. I carry it around and so on. So he's very proud of that. And then when he was uh, about 12, he got to go on set and watch Jake Tremblay being rolled up in a rug. Though, as he pointed out, Jake had it easy, right? Because he only had to be rolled up once. And after that, they put a camera in. We had a rug cam. Mm. Um, <laughs> so he didn't have to stay in the rug for long. So, so yeah, my, my kids get a huge kick out of the fact that I've, I've used them in these different ways. Because I'm never really writing about them, right? They're not portraits of, of them. Um, but they love being raw material. That's lovely, yeah. I mean, I can imagine a child also not wanting that. 
I think they just haven't had a chance to, to ever say that they didn't want to be in my fiction. <laughs> really, I began so early. You yeah. know, so probably as soon as my son realized I was writing books, he already knew he was in them. You know, so I never it, really asked permission. <laughs> it helps that they're lovely, they're wonderful, wonderful, fascinating characters, right? That helps. Well, I hope so. Um, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. My, my kids haven't read most of my books, so... They don't mm. even know what the results are. They just, they're so comfortable with the process that whatever yeah. happens to you, you know, when, when the seagull of life comes down and rips away the panini of your happiness, you know, at least you can use it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> at least you can use it. Well, that's and a I good think it lesson teaches them for them good, to yeah, learn, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's usable. It's, it's all yes. usable. Yeah, yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, you say what terrible things happened and you all have a laugh about it. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's quite a good life skill. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about Akin, the new book? Sure. Akin is, um, it's kind of, as books go, it's a road movie in that it's about two people traveling together. Um, so, you know, they're not locked in a room, but they are kind of shackled together as travel companions are. Um, it's, it's my first contemporary one since Room, and it's about a 79-year-old former chemistry <coughs> professor called Noah, who's he's longtime widowed, and he lives in New York, and he's about to go visit Nice in France, where he came from as a small child. But into this story, like for him, it's... He, he, he would probably think he was in a story of memory and, you know, going back to the place he came from and figuring out what his mother was up to in the war. But then his story is sort of crashed into by another story, which is that um, he gets a call from a social worker to say that his 11-year-old <coughs> great-nephew, who he's never met, um, has absolutely no one to take him in and can Noah please just temporarily take on his guardianship. So Noah gets his arm twisted and he has to bring this boy to France with him and Michael, um, you know, who's, who's very much got a hard shell on him, he's had a, a, a tough 11 years and he's been living on food stamps. So he's far from being grateful for, you know, France and beauty and buildings and French food and so on. He's, he's, um, he's not an easy companion at all. And so my, my challenge was to, um, to bring these people together and, and to see what might happen, but without giving way to the kind of sentimentality that that premise might seem to be leaning towards, you know? And I said to myself, these guys are not the hugging kind. You know, no. they're, they're both in, in their own separate ways, but they're quite tough characters. And I wanted to see what they would learn about each other and what they would discover about themselves if I gave them a week together traveling. And they go to France. They go yeah, to Nice. they go back to Nice. And... Um, um, yeah, Nice is a very interesting city. I spent one year there because my partner was sent there um, as, as part of the job. And then we liked it so much, we went back with the kids three years later. So I've spent two separate years there. And it's such an interesting place because it's so relaxed and touristy and even slightly trashy. You know, it's all casinos and mm -hmm. parties and carnival. Um, but it has this very dark historical side as well. You know, there are Turkish cannonballs embedded in the walls. Um, the castle was knocked down by the French. It's been attacked by so many different sides. And in the war, it was occupied first by Italy and then immediately after by Germany. Um, so um, to give you one sort of representative moment, um, Noah's got a little handful of photographs that he thinks his mother took. And he's trying to work out from these what she was up to. You know, why did she send him on to New York as a child? And she stayed on for a few years in France during the war. So he's got one particular photograph, which he can tell is a, is a slightly frilly-looking building. And he thinks, oh, I'll compare this as I walk through Nice. You know, he's looking at different buildings. And so Michael, the 11-year-old, says, why don't you just Google it? And Noah's <laughs> saying, well, how would I describe it? You know, what words would I use? And the boy's like, duh, image search. Um, and then Noah's, oh, 
if I find a scanner, I can copy the photo, and the boy takes out his camera on his phone, takes a picture of the picture, and immediately says it's the Excelsior Hotel in Nice, which turns out to be um, the hotel the Nazis commandeered as their headquarters. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the boy, without liking this weird old man who's looking after him, the boy gets drawn into Noah's search, and even though Noah's the one with more education and privilege and, you know, knowledge of the world after almost 80 years, the boy has the, the quickness of an 11-year-old. He has got the, mm. the familiarity with um, technology and the kind of visual acuity that I find that generation do. So, so they're, more, they're more evenly balanced. They each have some of the power. Um, it's not at all the, you know, the, the story Noah thought it was of like, he has everything and this poor boy needs a lot. It's really a much more evenly matched duel. And that makes it so interesting on a contemporary level. I mean, I don't know if there's ever been a boy who's been written about like this, who spends so much time on his little, his little machine, right? He's like constantly click, 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 and he's got his baseball hat down Yeah, the low little screens are really protective amulets. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but, but he's also, it, what I found interesting about the book is that there's this dark history of Nice that, that Noah carries as, you know, as, as, a, as a child. And then there's this other part that comes in with Michael's history. So they're both, they both have histories that they need to have um, uncovered and that, do that very naturally uh, both, both people from such different age levels begin to uncover. Well, I like the way history sort of rhymes. So... Um, for instance, at one point, Noah's describing World War II to the boy, and he says something about, and there was a curfew, you know, you had to be off the streets at a certain point, and he's explaining to the boy mm. what a curfew is, and the boy's like, duh, I had a curfew, grandma said I had to come straight home from school before I got shot, you know, so, so, so Michael's, you know, he's from the last ungentrified bit of Brooklyn, um, you know, his is a world of gunfire and gangs and, you know, lines like snitches die in ditches. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he understands that kind of wartime atmosphere much more than Noah. So, yeah. so, yeah, there are all sorts of echoes. Yeah, and the war on drugs comes in in a really big way. And, and that's part of the exploration of the story. Yeah, it? Michael's mother is in, in prison on drugs charges and um, his father is dead of an overdose. Um, you know, I was just reading the most astonishing figure that in Canada, well, I'm going to misremember this, mm -hmm. but it's something like every couple of hours a Canadian dies of an overdose. I mean, it's, oh. it's, it's like the most massive um, source of death at the moment, and, and yet right. it's barely mentioned. Um, right. So, yeah, I chose the drug war because I wanted to find some contemporary parallel for the kind of, you know awful unsettling situation of Noah's childhood in World War II, but I didn't want to go for any really neat parallel. So I didn't want to go for a war between countries, and I thought it would be interesting to take mm -hmm. um, the drug war, as they call it, as, as a similar sort of site of, you know, agonizing over loyalties and the police, are the police the good guys or the bad guys? Um, you know, what are the ethics of your dealing with a kind of oppressive occupying force? Yeah. And what's really interesting, well, you just have to all buy the book, but... But one of the things that's very interesting is how sort of hidden under the surface there are these two very strong women. Yeah, know? I mean, you know, I, my fiction has tended to be um, known as kind of women-focused. So this one happens to be about an old man and a boy, but I wanted their mothers to be crucially important to them. I mean, the reason Noah mm. is a man at all, I suppose, is that I was interested in starting with the idea of this mother and what she did in the war. Because, you know, we tend to ask these questions about what did daddy do in the war? I thought it would be really interesting to look at a woman's kind of hidden war life. So then I thought, okay, what if her son is now 
he would be nearly 80, I thought. Can I do that? And then I thought, yeah, okay, I can, I can try and write a character that old. And Emma, you mentioned in the afterword that you were quite inspired by Matisse's daughter? Is yeah, Mat Matisse the painter lived in Nice for many decades and his daughter was this sort of impeccable helper to him. And then when World War II broke out, she just went off and joined the resistance and never told her father. She, he was trying to stay out of politics. So I thought it was fascinating that war could really bring something out in a character that, that mm. you know, that, that that character had no idea she had before. Um, the idea of our, our morality as being contingent, you know, that, yeah. that um, the times bring out new things in us. Um, though I have to say, I did a lot of, when I was writing this novel, um, I was trying to establish the whole sort of spectrum of, um, you know, the resistance in France who were maybe 2%, um, and then the ones who were actively anti-Semitic and would run off and volunteer information to the Nazis about their neighbours. And then in the middle, there was a huge group who the French called attentistes, wait and seers. And right. I remember when I read that word thinking, oh, that's me, I'm a wait and seer. Yeah, I'm a, you know, read about the horrors of the world on Twitter and then carry on with my novel, you know? But do uh, you know that? <laughs> I mean, because you, you, I mean, m maybe if we put you back in Nice in 1942, that wouldn't be the case. I don't know, mm. I don't know, because, you know, the times, the times give plenty of provocation to those who are willing to stand up and do something about it. And I'm a sit back and write about it kind of person, you know? But that's imp so important. Can you, yeah. can you read us? Sure. Okay. I'm going to read you a little scene set in a um, restaurant in Nice. Um, there are a lot of restaurant scenes. Um, they've been there a couple of days now. Where we go. They passed a papeterie, a purveyor of fine stationery, which claimed to be by appointment to Her Majesty Queen Victoria. It seemed as if everybody who was anybody had come through Nice sooner or later. No wonder Noah's photographer grandfather had never needed to leave. The city was a playground, a stage set, a still point in a turning world. <gasps> Oh, that aroma, how it took Noah back three quarters of a century. Soka, there it was, squares of thin gold that a woman was digging out of her dish the diameter of a truck wheel. Oh, but it was nearly noon, and Noah needed to have his lunch sitting down, and he was determined not to miss the right slot for a meal as he had yesterday. So he turned away from the Soka cart. Through an alley that was barely wider than his arm span, he found his way onto a shopping street and went along sniffing out appetizing scents for lunch. Gross, said Michael, who was eye to eye with a whole-spitted pig. Well, said Noah, where do you think your bacon comes from? Do you want a slice? It's got a face, dude, said the boy. <laughs> that made Noah think of Alice in Wonderland. Didn't she find it impossible to eat anything she'd been introduced to? The pig was indeed dazzlingly gross, a spectrum of shades from pink to orange. A blackened string like a prisoner's chain bound it, sunken and burned right in. Noah held up his cracked phone and took a close-up through the greasy glass. Noah picked a little bistro for their lunch simply because its chalk menu offered testicules de mouton pané, crispy fried sheep's balls, he translated. Order them, order them, <laughs> begged Michael. Sorry, said Noah, not in the mood. And not for tête de avec langue either, that's calf's head with its tongue, Michael gagged. At their table, Noah dithered over the menu. Tripe, a terrine of foie gras, rabbit in its sauce. He loved that French idiom, as if each dish rightly had only one proper sauce. 
He said, you know, rabbits can have several hundred great-grandchildren in a year. Nightmare, said, Noah, said Michael. Did the rabbits feel a glow of dynastic pride, Noah wondered, or had they no idea that these younger bunnies were anything to them, just more competition for the limited grazing? Michael rejected everything that Noah suggested he might like to eat, and there was no kids' menu here, nor credit card payment or even phone bookings, he noticed from the chalkboard. It was the bistro that time forgot. Aha, he said as he turned the card over. Look, pizza margarita, you'll like that. I don't want any margarita, said the boy. No, no, that's just the name for a cheese pizza in France. Okay, said Michael. He wanted Noah to order the escargot alai, just so as I can watch. But Noah wasn't in the mood for snails. They're intersexed, you know. What now, said the boy. Snails, said Noah. They each have a tiny penis and a vagina right by the head. <laughs> Michael's eyes narrowed. You know a lot of stuff, but most of it's sick, he said. <laughs> That was a com fair comment, Noah thought. He finally picked Lou entier cuit à la planche, monkfish cooked on a plank. Though after the proprietor had taken their order and got back into the kitchen, he realized he'd confused the words. Lot was monkfish and Lou was sea bass. Since he couldn't taste the difference, really, what, difference, what, di what did it matter? Michael said, why does everyone touch that thing on their way out of the restaurant? He looked where the boy was pointing. It was a little hunched man in bas-relief. Ah, oh, he's called Gobbo, said Noah, the word floating back up from his childhood. You rub his hump for good luck. No way, said the boy. The pizza arrived startlingly fast and seared with black from the wood-fired oven. It smelled so good, Noah somewhat regretted ordering the fish. Michael glowered. He said, I knew there'd be goddamn margarita. These are just basil leaves for a garnish. Noah lifted one off with his fork. Well, I don't eat fucking garnish. Michael gouged them out and flicked them onto Noah's plate. <laughs> Noah wished his wife was alive. Well, what was new? Not that Joan would necessarily have known what to do with Michael, but at least the challenge would have been shared, even halved. What merciless fate had decreed that Noah turn 80 in this brat's company? He ate the basil. So the boy's moody this week, he told himself. Bereaved jet-lagged, hadn't he good reasons? Is your pizza acceptable otherwise, he asked. Too flat, said the boy with his mouth full, and they kind of burned it. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. So you kind of get a sense of what a surly boy he can be. Um, it, it's funny, in my very first draft, um, I would say... Noah was very tough with him, and the boy was very rude back. Mm. And my publishers all said, oh, that old man is being so mean to that poor, bereaved boy. So they really made me tone down Noah's crustiness. But they, they encouraged me to leave Michael as was. And the thing is, yes, no, he's, he's rude and obnoxious, but, you know, he has just come from the flat he was living in on food stamps with his mother's mother. She's just died at 60, so he has no one left. His mother's in jail. You know, he's perpetually afraid and trying to hide his ignorance and bewildered. You know, like he has a couple of dollars Noah's given him as pocket money, and when Noah won't buy him a second hot dog at one point, he runs off and tries to buy one, and they won't take his money. You know, he's, he's completely unfamiliar with things like the currencies being different, the time lags. Um, so, so I suppose I've tried to... I've tried to show that he, is, he has put this shell around himself. Um, 
And yes, I could have had him, you know, behave more nicely and be more cute. But, you know, I didn't want to do a cute kid no. book. I wanted no, this one to be I very think it's real. So, it's so interesting. And what's interesting, too, is, is Noah's response. He is not a father. He never was a father never or a grandfather. Never wanted to be a father. <laughs> no. And so what we have is this ex-chemistry professor, specialist in polyvinyl chlorides, very unlikely hero, and his response is to talk about the penises of, of, of the escargot. Yeah. And, and the boy relates. And I mean, there, one thing I, I like about fiction as opposed to film, you know, both have their advantages, but fiction gives you more time. You can let conversations spool out um, in their natural way. So you can have the child, you know, ignore that then, and then 100 pages later, he'll remember the snails. So, so you, can, you can weave it very naturalistically and delicately because you don't have to reduce each conversation to its essence. So I really enjoy that about fiction, that, you know, it can be, it can be leisurely. It can almost have the pace of tourism, and yet there's a lot going on underneath yeah. the surface of the conversations. And now you just mentioned that, that you did a draft, and then you did another draft. Now, how many... How many drafts did you go through? Oh, I always do at least three. Um, yeah. I mean, that's fewer than I used to. My first novel, mm -hmm. I did seven drafts because really I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but there'd always be a rough draft and then a complete first draft from my publishers and then a second draft based on what my publishers say. And then all the layers of copy editing where you, you fix things at the sentence level and then the proofreading where they catch you in abominable errors. Um, and when you're drafting, when you sit down to do, to do your first draft... Are you on the computer and beginning to end like that? Like drafting um, chapter usually, by chapter? Occasionally I will let myself jump ahead if there's a particular scene I want to write. But yes, mm -hmm. I'm mostly beginning to end. And here's the thing, I'm a big planner. You know, there are planners and pantsers. Um, and I really, you know, envy the writers who fly by the seat of their pants. I think they must be doing pantsers. it all at an unconscious level. And yeah. because I can't. So, so I, I plan in a way that might strike you as very sort of cold-blooded. But it's not. It's just... It's just plotting my journey through the wilderness so that I've, when I get to a scene, I know why I'm including that scene. It's not just what comes next. And when you say plan, do you mean that you draw a picture of it? No, I mean, I would have um, sort of written a kind of a list of, of what scenes come where, and I'd have said to myself, you know, those, those two scenes in restaurants are too similar, so let's put that mm -hmm. one in the last chapter instead, or let's cut that one out. So it's um, almost like a storyboard that you've got. Exactly, yeah, piece. I use a good program called yeah. Scrivener, and I would have little, little files on each scene. Um, so really, by the time I'm drafting a scene, I, I know basically what I'm up to. Now, of course, mm -hmm. things still change once you have them talking to each other, and dialogue is a wonderfully unpredictable element. You know, it's like turning yeah. off the heat under a scene. Um, but I do at least plan you know, what they're going to do and why, because um, I find I, I can't structure a novel well without that level of planning. And I, m I remember reading E.M. Forster said that when he writes, he needs to write towards the mountain. The mountain is the thing that's, that's waiting for him. But when he gets there, the mountain changes. So is that the case with you? Do you find that by the time you reach the end, it, the end has altered or... Or do sometimes, or, or sometimes things that develop between characters as, as you go along. Um, for an, or, and it's not always me who sees it even. Um, for instance, as a sort of backstory to Michael, I had the fact that his father has died of an overdose. And I wasn't particularly questioning that. I just saw that as a fixed element of his backstory. And then um, my agent said to me, like, oh, I don't believe that was simply an overdose. So I thought, okay, mm. what does she know? I don't. That's ridiculous. You know? <laughs> so I went back and read it, and actually I realized there was, there was some ambiguity there. So there was room oh, for that to be 
as a little sort of sub-mystery. So maybe you dropped that in there, and she saw that, but you just you hadn't tightened the focus it, it on that yet. It could be. It could be. Or again, um, with my last novel, The Wonder, there's there's a nun in it who's very silent and is just the kind of secondary nurse figure. And um, again, the same agent said to me, "I think that nurse knows that nun knows more than she's letting on." And there's always a moment where I'm like. How have, you, how have you been talking to the nun? She's not, <laughs> it's not even published yet. How can you know? But yes, if I go back and read it, then there's some, there's some, there's some room for ambiguity in the dialogue. And this so is a really terrific agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's no, wonderful. No, these questions are so helpful. Um, and again, editors yeah. have asked me superb questions, which make me yeah. complicate and rethink and make something more subtle. Yeah, because in both those cases, those are very interesting parts of the novel. That yeah. then get developed. And, that they're, they're, the and, and they're teasing out what's there. They're not yeah. saying, stick in an airplane. You know, they're not yeah. saying, add something new. They're just kind yeah. of. Was it now, did that there. same agent say something interesting about Room at some point? Um, room changed very little. Room, I was really, it was just like hit by a vision. By the end of that car drive, you know, I couldn't pull over because it was the highway. So, you know, I drove along <laughs> distractedly and I knew the title, I knew exactly where. Um, at the, um, how the novel would be divided into two halves. I knew what the last scene would be. By the end of the car drive? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, it really came to me like, oh, it'll go from his birthday until... Wow. Yeah, I knew what the last scene would be. I knew the shape of it. That one came very cleanly, yeah. With most Amazing. of my novels, there'd be more And how long did planning. it take to write it? Um, maybe six months to research, six months to draft... Yeah, so again, came fairly fast. And what takes a long time with writing? It's not the number of pages, it's all your uncertainties and your boring bits, you know. When you say your boring bits, you mean you sort of self The bits where you get bored. Oh, yes. And then you think, <laughs> oh, if I'm bored, maybe the reader will too. Maybe we can do without chapter three. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, if you really know what you're doing, the writing can come very fast. You know? Yeah. And is there a place in the research where you just suddenly go, I know enough, I can't, I just can't shove more into my head, or do you, like how much research do you need, or do you like to leave some parts unknown and then do that research as you go? No, it's more, I think I've done all the research I need, and then as I write it, fresh questions occur to me, mm-hmm. um, and, and they need fresh answers, so... Um, so you really fill up with research before you start to I write? I really do, and I, I do long notes files, and then I attempt to structure them, um, into, you know, sub-notes files, you know, notes all about, I don't know, uh, Noah's got a hat, for instance. Um, again, uh, I, I, a really nice summer hat I was wearing got completely wrecked at the Nice Carnival by somebody behind me with silly string, like, glooping it all over me. Um, and I thought, well, at least I'll get to use this at the novel. So I gave Noah a really nice hat, uh, an antique fedora. So then I had to, you know, work out how old this hat was and was it made of chinchilla fur? So I, I spend a day researching fedoras, you know. So again, it'll only be a couple of lines in the novel, yeah. but it'll be the right lines. But that's, yeah. Yeah, I've never regretted hat. doing too much research because I'm not doing the research in order to put off the writing, you know. Um, so I don't fear that the research is going to take me so far away from the book, I'll never write the book. Um, especially as nowadays with the internet, you can go back and forth mm-hmm. between the, the drafting and the research fairly seamlessly. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't always have to be off in the library um, and so, so the research is just kind of on and off throughout, throughout the book. Right. And we wanted to talk also about the adaptation, the process of adaptation, and um, focusing in on Room. You did the screen adaptation for, for Room. It was your f- 
Was it your first ever screenplay? I had tried writing screenplays, but I had never had one produced, so it was the first successful screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't tried very much because it can seem like a very hard world to get into. It's a bit of a closed world. It's far more kind of specialist and, and surrounded by jargon than other forms of mm -hmm. writing are, you know. Um, so what made you decide to do that with Well, Room? I just had a feeling with Room that it could be a gripping film, and I didn't want anyone to do it badly. I thought it could be a really, you know, sappy or a really rapey film, because, if, you know, film is visual, yeah. so anything to do with, you know, like rape in a dungeon could obviously get way more trashy once the camera's involved. So I, I thought, I, I can't let down the fans by letting them make a bad film of this. Yeah. So, um, Can I, I just wanted to ask a question. How many people here have, have read Room? Okay, so, good. And, cool. And that's <laughs> wonderful. And what about, this is among the two million so <laughs> And what about seeing the movie? Okay, also. Okay, so good. So we're talking Starring to... local heroes, So let's get, let's get really into this then. We were okay. so relieved to find a Canadian child, by the way, because yeah. we were under the Canadian funding rules. We were only allowed two and a bit Americans. So <laughs> we, had cast, we had to cast the adult first because children grow teeth. You know, and we had this running joke about how we'd rip out his teeth if he started getting big teeth. We never <laughs> had to. No teeth were in fact removed in the making of the film. But what I mean is, so we cast the adults first. So, so we cast Brie Larson, she was an American. And then um, we had to find a Canadian child because if we didn't, then the child would have to be the second American. Um, so casting Jake Tremblay from Canada, who was the perfect child actor, allowed us then to have Joan Allen as the mother and then William Macy was our, was our cameo role. You must have been so... <coughs> thrilled with the casting. Oh, wasn't I? Yes. And yeah. also what's really nice was because I worked very closely with the, it was a small production company from Ireland called Element, um, who are now doing splendidly like they did that film, um, The Favourite as well, since. Um, mm. So, um, so uh, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, because I worked very closely with them and I tried not to make a pain of myself, um, they would do things like they would share um, casting videos with me. You know, so I didn't, you know, I never thought I would get to be part of that to see. Um, and were they, were you, did you have a role? Like, did you have a say in the casting? I, I, they consulted me and everything, but I didn't try and, you know, throw my power around. Not right. a bit, because I really believe in the kind of auteur theory of film, that a really brilliant film is, is the director's vision. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, we were all swapping ideas and we, you know, we talked about so many different actors for Room, but I never tried to be like, you know, I get to decide because, you know, the director is the one who makes the film. And what about Brie Larson? I mean, she was so amazing. And I know I read um, or I saw an interview with Lenny Abrahamson, the, the director, and he said that uh, they were so drawn to him and perhaps you too, because or to her, because she didn't seem like she was acting, that she had this quality of being so uh, just embodying the character. Yeah. Was that something that, that struck you? Oh, she gave, she, gave, um, she gave everything she had. She would spend her, her time off writing a teenage scrapbook diary of her character, you know, for the one shot where you see her filling in the scrapbook. She would make the scrapbook herself? Yeah, she, you know, she let the hair under her arms grow. Yes. For a Hollywood actor, that's a big deal. That's <laughs> like serious bodily modification. But know? I also heard that she, she went into her own house for a month. And stayed there and didn't yeah. leave. I think she sealed herself up a bit. Yeah. And above all, and most important thing she did was she and Jake, our kid, got together, you know, 
10 days before filming and they played a lot of Lego, they really got to know each other. Because, you know, what was crucial was to suggest that absolute intimacy between mother and child. So she really befriended him and that was the single most useful mm. thing she did. So her performance and his, they're kind of dyadic like a mother and a baby, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they each produced their best work in that context of just playfulness and intimacy. Also, another interesting thing, um, Lenny, our director, said to the, um, you know, the, the funders of the film, I need to make this film in order, which is not usually how films are made. Mm. Usually it's just like, oh, we'll do the three helicopter scenes all together. But he said, I need to film this scene from the beginning to the end so that it'll make sense to the child. Um, and he admitted to me afterwards that he just wanted to do it that way. <laughs> oh, really? It was so pleasurable for all of us because you could literally see, you know, the, the child getting more confident on how everything was different in the outside world and so on. It, it made absolute sense to do it, you know, almost like a play it's rather than the way film is usually made. Well, a couple of, what, a couple of things. I mean, th there's so much to talk about in it, but um, one of the things was, um, I remember Lenny Abrahams also saying that people go into the film with the idea that it's going to be so dark, and then they're so surprised because it's actually so life-affirming. And I think that's just, I mean, I think that's why it's so moving. It's so, it's so incredibly touching on, on so many levels because of that, because it's so unexpected that this is actually going to be about love. You know, you think it's going to be about horror. You think, oh, they're stuck in a room. It's just going to be this awful thing. But in actual fact, it's about this very tender love. And not only that, but incredible bravery of this mum to create this world for this boy where he's safe. Yeah, Lenny mm -hmm. really related to the story as a father of two small kids. And um, the reason I knew that I would be safe making the film with him is that he did a really unusual thing. You know, usually in the film world, people kind of keep their cards close to their chest and they just say that maybe their people will meet your people. You know, it's this kind of negotiating. Right. Lenny wrote me a 10-page letter out of the blue describing the film he would make. He, like, put all his ideas on the piece of paper. Before uh, he, before oh, he yeah. became the director. Exactly. Said and I, I read it and I was like, oh yeah, this guy's a genius right. and he would make the same kind of film that I want to make. Right. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's again so un-Hollywood. You know, just to, just to expose yourself like that and say, this is the film I would make, will you let me? You know, and I hadn't heard of him before, but that letter completely won me over. He obviously um, really, really connected with it. He did. Yeah. And, um, and I knew I'd, I knew that he'd make a beautiful film of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I think writers often find the experience of having their work filmed really bruising, especially if they're not involved, you know, because they go along and see it, and it's obviously been through so many changes that they recoil. But if you are involved, it can be a really enjoyable process because you're not trying to just preserve, even if my initial mm. impulse had been, must save this from being a trashy film. And then I got so enthusiastic about the process of telling the story again through light and through faces, you know, because film is made of different stuff from a book. Yeah. Um, so, so I was never like looking at each page of the book and thinking, how do we keep this? You know, it wasn't like that. I sort of set the book aside and said, okay, let's tell the story again visually. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second because in the book, I mean, the book is this first-person point of view from the boy in the present tense. And I mean, right from the first page, you know, if, as you'll remember, bed is bed with a capital B and carpet is carpet with a C because these are the only ones he's experienced. Well, it's kind of, I, I, I was trying to think what would the natural religion of this kind of two-person civilization be? And I thought right. it's, it's atavism where every object has a spirit. You know, that's how, mm. that's how he would see it, you know. If there are two things, he'd say those are the glasses, but if there's only one table, it would be, hello, table, you know. It's so sweet. So then you had that 
to change into in, in, in the movie. Yeah, and you a movie is, is never going to be entirely from one point of view, because if it is, like if you attach a GoPro camera, then it's a different, it's, it's gimmicky. Um, so I knew the movie was going to be much more of a two-hander, for instance. So even though J Jack is in every scene and we don't include anything he wouldn't see, um, we, we still, you're you know, still not quite in his head. There's one scene where he's asleep and she's crying and crying. Oh yeah, yeah. I suppose and he's he's there, but sh but but yeah. But sh he's asleep. Yeah. And he's asleep, and so then we get to see her grief. Yeah. And it was interesting too. I felt like with the book, we because it's so much inside his head. All her, all Ma's, the brilliant, brilliant Ma. All her bravery is siphoned through him. But this, when you see the movie, her, you get to see her. I was really relieved that the movie would be much more of a two-hander because a lot of fans had written to me begging for more about Ma or would I please tell the whole story again from Ma's point of view. And I feel there have been a lot of books about, you know, locked-up women, so I didn't want to do that myself. But I could see that, you know, the fans wanted just more of her. So it was lovely to be able to do that, to really, mm -hmm. you know, through Brie Larson, let Ma as a character really step into the light. Yeah. Because, yeah, in the book, um, you know, it's, it's also filtered through Jack. Um, and there's much that, you know, he doesn't know and so he doesn't report on, you know? Yeah. Can we talk about Old Nick for a second? Because Old Nick is, it's in the book, Old Nick really, you, we hardly see Old Nick. And the re one of the reasons for that is because Ma puts, puts the boy, um, Jack, in the cupboard in order to protect him um, at night. Right, to keep him as far away from, uh, from, from as the far away from old Nick as pos as the bad yeah. from the bad guy who comes in every night and you know works the codes and then comes in. And she's so brave. I mean, I think one of the things I love about the way you do it in the book is she's so brave, but we don't. But but we're a bit. We have a few um, steps of removal from. Um, because Jack doesn't know how brave she is. Yeah, being. we have to deduce the decisions that Ma's yeah, making. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So at one point, um, old Nick sees. Jack in the cupboard and gets really interested and she says to her and it's in the movie too um, uh, Brie Larson Ma says come to bed please and you realize oh my god she's actually pleading with this horrible rapist to come to bed to sleep with her in order to protect her son yeah it's beautiful yeah oh she makes me cry in that film yeah. several times yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, me too. No, it's funny, you know, a film so doesn't belong to any one person, or perhaps the director might feel it belongs to him, but as the writer, I certainly feel like the film was such a communal effort and that, you know, Brie just took that character and brought her so much to life. Yeah. Um, I, I don't feel, like, you know, proud of my own writing at moments like that. I feel like, you know, it's all her. And um, what's that like for you, like, that you started out with something that you thought up in a car, driving, and wrote on a napkin, <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's being... You know, um, lucky, into lucky is what I would feel, and also it's been so interesting. I mean, because because now I've I'm you know I have a a play of room as well, which is about to have its Canadian oh. premiere in London, Ontario, and then in Toronto at Mervish. Um, and so to see it take on a new life in theatre again, it feels like it's got less and less to do with me, uh, that I own it less and less. Um, yeah. Because it's funny when you write a book and it doesn't sell very many copies, it's like your own little special pet. <laughs> but once it's a bestseller, it's right? Like, <laughs> Oh my God! It's in China. You know, yeah. it's 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 reaching people through a translator that I will never meet, and it's meaning something different to them. And wow! So it, you've less and less of a hold on it. And the same thing with the film and the play. Um, you know, as as your collaborators bring their ideas and their energy and their brilliant new takes on it, 
you know, you don't own it anymore. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a great feeling. And was the experience of, like, sort of having this go onto steroids, super steroids, and go to Hollywood and uh, be nominated for an Academy Award, um, has it changed how you write the next book? No, no, it really hasn't, because it would be a shame for a, a one-off experience to mm. mess with your method. And, you know, fiction is my, is my core form of writing. So, um, no, in fact, if I was writing a novel and I thought, oh, this should be a screenplay, then I would stop and do it as a screenplay, because I should only write a novel if a novel is the best form for it. Um, and I would say the novel's strengths are psychological. You know, you have enough time to really to show a lot of your character's thoughts. And, you know, we get a full week of what's going through the mind of Noah and what's going through the, the mouths of, of him and Michael. So there's, so, so there's room for subtlety. Um, a film um, is often much more plot-based. So, yes, there's subtlety, but it's often in the acting. Mm -hmm. um, often the script has to be relatively... It has to have a real forward momentum. For instance, there's one scene in, in the Book of Room that I really wanted to, to keep in the screenplay, and we never found a place for it. Um, it's where Maz tells Jack at a certain point that there was a first baby who got stillborn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the book, it was easy to fit that in. And in the film, every time in the editing process they tried to find a place for that scene, Lenny would say, oh, God, it's like, it's a downer. <laughs> it's dragging us back down into the dark. And I absolutely saw that. So by the time I'd spent two days with him in the editing suite, I could see why that scene had to go because at that point the film was on this, you know, it had this wonderful kind of um, forward momentum bringing us back up to the light. So I really saw that editing is almost about rhythm in a musical sense. It's not about mm -hmm. the content. So, so I mm. think from now on, I think I'm, I've, something I've learned about film writing is not to fixate so much on what they say, because a scene may lose all its dialogue and still have the same kind of heartbeat to it, and also not to worry quite so much about content and mentioning all the right things, because, again, it's more, like, it's, it's more about the feel. That's, that's very interesting. Um, you are also doing a screenplay for The Wonder, are you not? Yeah, yeah, and um, with the same, um, the same Irish film company as Room, different director this time, but the same production company, and I, it, would, it would very much be filmed in Ireland. Now, that'll be a more expensive film. Um, Room, it's funny, Room cost about, I don't know, I, I, depending on which currency we're talking, either seven mm. or 10 million, which counts as an indie movie. <laughs> Um, so, so any any period drama is more expensive than that. So we'd have to raise more. But yeah, I think I think the Wonder could be a good film too. Yeah. Um, and I I just really enjoy this task of adaptation because, you know, far from making me kind of you know cling to the details of my book, it's more like a chance to tackle the story again, but tell it differently and above all visually, you know. And with sensory details like yeah, visually with. Um, um, I want to say smell, but obviously it's not smell. It's like it's like sound. There's a lot of you know. There's just the yeah. all of the sounds in room. And, and for instance, um, you know, the Catholicism um, is very important to many of the characters mm -hmm. in the Wonder. And in the book, they it's mostly verbal. So there's lots of prayers, lots of um, um, songs. You know, it's a it's a very verbal kind of religion. And I I wanted it to be more pictorial in the film script. So I'm finding ways in which. You can go to different locations, you know, like, like graveyards or a stra standing stone, you know, the, where, where the idea of their faith is kind of written on the landscape in a more visual way rather than them always talking, talking about it. You know? Interesting. And would you recommend to people, say, there's lots of uh, writers and avid readers in the audience, but would you, would you say, yes, adapt your novel? 
you know, if they've written a novel. If you have a genuine enthusiasm for film, mm -hmm. yeah, you yeah. can't be snobby about it. You can't be thinking, oh, a book is always better. But if you love both forms, yeah. yeah. And I would certainly, I would kind of, you know, private mission, which is whenever I meet a woman who's written a novel and she says to me, oh, there's some talk of it being filmed. I always say, do it yourself, you know, because the film industry is still horribly male-dominated. 87% um, of films are written by men still. Um, and when you say do it yourself, you mean do the screenplay yourself. Yeah, I write do, absolutely, because there, there has been a real tradition of, you know, the professionals, you know, full-time right. screenwriters who are usually men, taking it away um, uh, from, from novelists who are women. And I think really, you know, if you can write a novel, you can certainly write a screenplay, so. And after they write. <laughs> <laughs> and after they write the screenplay, then they take, it, they take it to their agent or they take it out into the world. Or, or they might wait till it's sold, but then say, I want to be the one who writes it. So, you know, mm -hmm. the, the process can vary, but I think you should start with the assumption of, you know, if the novelist wants to have a go, why not? Um, it's, yeah. it's no harder than any other form of writing. Right. Um, and novelists are not always going to just blindly cling to, to their first version of something, you know? Yeah. Um, do you think that having two homes as you have, coming from Ireland, now being a Canadian, has helped with your kind of, your sense that you can exist in so many different worlds? Yeah, it's definitely made me more of a, of a world traveler in, in terms of my writings. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, sometimes I think, oh, I've ended up bewildered and not knowing where I am, in that occasionally if I'm writing a line of dialogue, I can't quite tell, um, am I using an idiom or grammar that's Irish, English, Canadian or American and I need to literally look it up, you know? So, so sometimes I envy writers who are just so rooted in their, their, in their place, their spot on the earth. But mostly I like roaming free and yeah. I, I love the kind of challenge of, okay, can I write a novel, um, you know, set in something like 19th century San Francisco, which I've never done before. I, I love, you know, the, not just getting all the details right, but getting the kind of rhythm of the character's language right. So I love these challenges. And yes, I think emigration helped. And I lived in England for eight years as well. So I've emigrated twice, never very daringly, right? You know, it's not, it's not Shanghai, it's Cambridge and yeah. then London, Ontario. <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate yeah. the heroism of my task, obviously. Um, but, um, yeah, I think emigration has helped me hugely. It has made me feel always, you know, like I didn't quite belong to the culture, and I think that's a good position for a writer to be in, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we should be the ones who are, you know, slightly on the edge of the conversation, listening in and noticing the phrases the locals use, which you don't notice if you're absolutely part of the conversation. Um, so, yeah, there are times when I feel a little bit confused, and how did I end up so far from home? But all in all, I think it's been very good for the writing. I think it's, it's helped, yeah. yeah. Well, you often do hear about writers who write their best stuff when they leave the home that they come from, like James Joyce. Yeah, or, that's right. You know, um, um, no, it's um, funny, I've been writing more about Ireland recently after a long phase of, of books that mm -hmm. weren't set in Ireland. Yeah, it's funny, the pull of the homeland. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, Canada has been so good for me, you know? It's partly because in Ireland I was like, that lesbian. I know it seems odd, but you know, <laughs> because I was one of the few who would comfortably speak about being in a same-sex relationship, I really was, was, was pigeonholed as, you know, the lesbian writer. And I came to Canada and they were instantly asking me about my use of the past tense in my fiction or something. I'd be like, oh, oh right, I'm just a nice. writer. I'm just a writer. That's what civil rights does, you know? Yeah. It actually allows the minority to become part of the whole thing. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, we started out 
talking about the dark times that we're living in, and I just wanted to, we're going to open it up to audience questions, but I just want to ask you one more question about that, which is, do you feel as though the onslaught of climate change, Trump being elected, has it altered how you feel about being a writer, a fiction writer, or what you need to tackle, or your job? Not, it hasn't fundamentally altered it, but I certainly notice with, with any of my fiction set now, I notice these issues looming larger. Yeah. Um, I would say that when, I, when I've written novels um, set in the moment of writing before, I didn't particularly feel that the newspaper headlines had to crowd in. Whereas, mm. say, with this one, I, you know, I definitely felt the politics hovering around it. And partly because, you know, once I was writing about Noah and other small children in World War II and the Holocaust, and then, you know, Michael as a vulnerable boy, I then found that I would, I would come across, you know, news, news stories that echoed that. Um, you know, in Nice, for instance, you know, I remember being in Nice, you know, beautiful day, it's such an idyllic place, and then reading in the local paper about uh, child migrants who would try and get um, from Italy into France on the train, and French police were kicking them off and cutting the soles off their shoes and taking the SIM cards out of their phones. Right. You know, so, so the idea of, of the vulnerable child, you know, it, it couldn't stay as just a structural part of my fiction. It, it kept kind of, you know, and chiming you put, you in different times and places. I did, yeah. I put that in, yeah. yeah. Um, and and you, you don't want a novel to be weighed down by its politics, so there are plenty of times that they're just discussing, you know, intersex snails or whatever. Yeah. But, but you can definitely put moments in where... where the now of the reader's experience and of the headlines, it, it touches the text. Mm -hmm. um, I still don't feel that my job as a writer is now to, to you know, persuade or to change. You know, I don't think no. writers are, are the same thing as activists, and I think that would make for very poor fiction. I don't think we even make very good representatives for movements, because we're always interested in the problematic and the ambiguous and the way, you know, I love to set up two opposites, like the old man and the boy, and then to find things they have in common and undermine the distinction between them. So I think we naturally muddy the waters. I think that's one, fiction, one thing fiction does. But I think above all, fiction is, is a technology of empathy. I mean, when you've read a novel you know, set in the mind of a character. I think you have, you've lived in their skin in a way that, you know, no, no, other, no other experience will do that for you. Um, so I think they do, in their own subtle way, they do contribute to changing minds and even changing votes. But you just can't make that your primary purpose when you're writing. Yeah, but as you say, I mean, that's, that's beautiful the way you say that, and I think that we would all agree, right, that this is, this is profound work. It's soul-changing work, and that's what... That's what fiction is. So, anyway, well, let's let's open it up for questions now uh, from the audience. So. so, if you have a question, just put up your hand. And um, yeah, there's somebody at the back. And if you don't mind standing up, and I'm, I'll probably repeat it unless your voice is really loud, because we also need it on the recording. Could you talk just a little louder? Yeah. Uh, my question is about stories of grandmothers. Did they inspire you? Because there seems to be long lines for the kids, but I know this is a big story, so there must be a million pages of stories of grandmothers. So as a grandparent, you can't exactly imagine how many grandmothers there are. 
I got the first one, which is writing about grandparents, particularly grandmothers, and asking Emma if she focuses on that. And the second was people immigration. Is that a source of her inspiration? Yeah, um, I'll answer the, uh, the grandparents one first. You know, it's funny, I didn't have particularly intense relationships with my grandparents, but I notice in, in my kids' books, uh, the lottery is set in Toronto where a, a grandfather has to move in with all these, um, you know, this household he doesn't know and these grandchildren he's never met. And then with this one, I seem really preoccupied with that. I think it's because writing a story across two generations like that, it's a great way to look at not just how age makes people different from each other. You know, the, the biorhythms of a 79-year-old will be different from those of an 11-year-old. Mm. But also generation, meaning like, what time in history did you come along? So, you know... An 11-year-old is an 11-year-old, but an 11-year-old who's on Instagram has this kind of weird, um, you know, sophistication. They've, they've just about heard of everything, though, in a satirical meme form, you know. Um, whereas, you know, Noah's generation, you know, were marked by the war. So, so I think uh, the, the grandparent-grandchild thing is just a great way to look at how generation and age make a big difference um, in... in um, to human character, but also it's a great way to suggest a relationship which is partly chosen because, you know, parents have to look after their kids, whereas once you're one generation mm. farther apart than that, it's more, it's more you know, discretionary. Um, it's, it's less obvious that Noah would have to look after this child. It's, it's a weird situation that he gets dragged into it, and so that makes it more interesting than just the kind of more obvious um, parent and child thing. As for, for Canada and its, its multicultural makeup, um, yeah, I have found that very inspiring, particularly in my children's fiction. So The Lotteries, um, it's two books set in Parkdale in Toronto. Um, we had a four-person family, a, a gay couple and a lesbian couple, um, where you know the, the parents are variously Jamaican, Indian, Mohawk, and Scottish in origin. And I really had fun with making that family, I think they described themselves as a, a multi-culty, raggle-taggle crew. And the grandfather calls them Mongols. And the eldest boy says to the others, like, don't worry about it, Mongols make the best character dogs, you know? <laughs> so, so I really liked playing with um, Canadian multiculturalism in a slightly utopian uh, vibe there um, in, in middle grade fiction, which again has a quite a sort of cozy feel to it. Because sometimes you want to write sort of grittily realistic fiction about racial tensions, and other times you just want to create a world in which everyone can thrive. Yeah. <laughs> More questions? Yes, here in the front. Well, it's funny, even if I'm making up stories or finding them in history in very sort of particular and gritty real cases, 
Um, I'm always aware of the more sort of archetypal patterns that you might be talking about with the river of storytelling. Um, as a child, I was obsessed with fairy tales, and I particularly loved spotting the similarities, you know, that like I'd read a Russian fairy tale mm. and go, oh, that's the selkie one about the woman from the sea, you know, and then it would turn up, you know, on the Pacific West Coast in a different format. So I loved the idea of the kind of the hidden DNA of stories. And I remember coming home, you know, as a maybe eight-year-old and saying to my father, who was a literary professor, like, oh, you know, I found these, 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 these little stories that turn up over and over. And he said, oh, yes, you know, look at the prop folk motif index. And I realized somebody <laughs> else had got there before me and <laughs> spotted and identified these patterns. But yes, I find them fascinating. And maybe because I have an academic background, you know, I was going to be a prof and did a PhD and then finally realized I could just write for a living. Amazing. But anyway, so this means I often sort of see the kind of... Um, more traditional pattern in what I'm writing, um, say say with with Room, even though I was trying to make it a sort of very realistic modern story, I was also thinking of of, of fairy tales like Rapunzel, mm. you know, the, the locked up woman, um, the, the virgin locked up in a, a tower which represents the virgin as it were, you know, and the idea of of, of the uterus as, as the, the sort of the locked, the secret chamber. Um, and you, you know, you try not to make these sort of archetypal overtones really obvious, but but they're there. They give an extra little kind of thrill to the story. If the story, if you can taste that that water comes from the river of stories, yeah. But but as for my the way I talk about a story as if as if it's a real thing and I didn't write it. No, it's a funny thing. Like you make up people, you make up characters, and then you find yourself sometimes arguing at public events. Somebody's going, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> and I think this is amazing. You know, I, I made this person up just out of my words. And now we're talking as if it's a real person, you know, who I clearly am not the expert on. <laughs> um, and same thing with stories. You know, I, I make them up and yet, they take on such realness if you do them right that then other people, you can get a film director going, no, what needs to happen is this, and you realize, okay, I don't own the story anymore. It has, it has wriggled away from me, you know? Um, so actually, it's a bit like those, those stories of, you know, the gods forming us out of clay, and then we start to move. Yeah, there's a moment mm -hmm. when your story walks away from you, you know? It's, That's it's, lovely. It's spooky magic. Yeah, and it is definitely magic. Over here, Yes. Did you hear that? How much of the screenplay? Yeah. So the question is, did they change the, did they, how much of the screenplay did, that you wrote did they use? It, it's funny, I've never sat down and compared my, my script with the finished film. It wouldn't really have occurred to me because, first of all, I wouldn't have put things like shots in at all. Um, I was relieved when I was teaching myself screenwriting to find that you're no longer expected to specify the camera mm. movement. You know, you leave all that to the director. Um, but also, like a, a breakthrough moment for me was I wrote one scene where Jack and Ma are in the bath and she's telling him the Selkie story about the woman from the sea, because that, that was an obvious archetypal story behind the idea of the kidnapped woman in room. So that was a well-written scene. And they filmed it, and I don't even know did they film her doing the dialogue, but either way, they, they, they threw the dialogue out of that film without telling me. And I saw that scene, and it's just Brie and Jake splashing each other in the bath, and it works perfectly, because you've got mm. the acting instead. You've got the intimacy, the fun, the water. It works, and so the DNA of the scene is, is preserved, even though all the actual spoken words are removed. 
And I realized, you know, don't fret so much about exactly how much do they keep, because that's not how you measure a good film. Um, I would say, for instance, a book I loved, The Time Traveler's Wife, I went to see the film and I was like, where did the magic go? You know, and it was a very close adaptation, it was respectful, but I, it didn't affect me the same way the book did. So mm. um, I think um, film adaptation can't be judged by how close it is to the, the script as written, it has to, or how close it is to the book, it has to be based on, like, did the, did the spark get preserved, you know? Thank you. Yeah, and we've got one right here. How did I teach myself screenplay writing? <laughs> In a very uncool way, I went to the university library and I got 10 books called things like How to Write a Screenplay. <laughs> and I remember fearing that the librarians would despise me. You know, they saw this loser staggering away under her <laughs> stack of books. But then a few years later when I was at the Oscars, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> it worked. It worked, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> That's so wonderful. Oh, my God. Orange cap? Yeah. Sure, sure. The, the process of, of forming the team to make room, yeah. Um, it was a very unusual way of proceeding. Um, usually, you know, a writer sort of waits and then is contacted and goes, oh, Hollywood, what my book? Um, but in this case, the people who were approaching me from, you know, the, the studio system, like one of them used the wrong title. He called it Their Room. And I thought, oh, if they don't have the title of the book right, I just... <laughs> don't think this is a good beginning. Um, some of them were just obviously from the more sort of commercial side of things. And I just didn't feel that they would make a beautiful film of it. Um, and then what was really unusual was um, to get this 10-page letter from Lenny out of the blue. Um, and he was saying, more or less, you don't know me. I know I'm an, I'm an Irish director. That, you know, you, your book is set in America. You've no reason to want a small Irish company to make it. But I know how to make this film. And he persuaded mm. me so much in the letter. But then we did something really unusual. I mean, they didn't have the money to buy the rights from me. Um, and and um, I said to them, look, I, I don't want money up front. I want to be fully involved. Um, so um, my agent suggested we do this really unusual um, attachment where we sort of almost agreed to hold each other's hand and yet nobody was committed. So for several years, we worked together without anybody getting paid and I still owned all the rights in my film. Now, there was a danger there that I could have just had a tantrum and walked away. But I think, you know, we'd all met, we'd all sat down together and had meals together and I think we knew we could trust each other because we all wanted to make a good film of this. So... So it was a very unusual deal in that they didn't buy the rights until the first day of filming. But that meant that they didn't have to raise money early. They didn't have to go sell a chunk of it to anyone. And that meant that Lenny Abrahamson, our amazing director, he was able to really keep his artistic independence. Because if you have to go and sell a chunk, um, you, you are letting other people have a vote. You know? And so he never had to go get a studio's help. Um, another great moment for us was um, that he managed to... Um, uh, sell the dist North American distribution rights to a company called A24 when it was only at the script stage. So again, instead of you know going to a traditional studio and, and you know selling them a chunk of it, we were able to just say you will have the distribution rights. But again, that didn't give anyone but but Lenny the right to, to make the decisions for the film. So we kept the circle of creativity small, which is crucial, I think. Um, I think a lot of films go wrong because there are 40 people giving their opinions, you know, and it becomes mm -hmm. like. You know, that description of a camel as an animal designed by a committee. You know, none of us want yeah. to make a camel. Um, 
And, you know, a, a moment that really made me realize how lucky I'd been was um, mm. I met a screenwriter from the Moore studio system, and she said to me, like, were you allowed to contact your director? Like, you had his address. You know, and I realized for her there were 20, 20 suits in between, you know, whereas, you know, I, I was working so closely and directly with him. There was such intimacy there. Um, so that was we basically did it in a very indie, European-style-of-filmmaking way. And again, we, you know... Um, it was a huge help that I was Canadian because, you know, we got, we got money from Canada as well and we cast most of the actors Canadian we made it in Toronto. So it was like the, the best of the two relatively small in film industries of Ireland and Canada with no big studio sort of throwing its weight around, you know. So it was really done in, in the indie system. And then that's, that's why it was so sweet when we got all the way to the Oscars because we never expected to. It was this little Irish-Canadian film. You know, so to see that we could make it using our sort of artistic integrity and have it still win prizes, that was just so unlikely, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, and so deserved. Uh, yes, at the back in the white. That's no, a fantastic question. That is a great question because, yeah, you know, when we describe the more kind of visionary moments of inspiration, it can sound like, oh, it just happened to happen to you. But actually, you need to be there and listening um, before the muse visits. Yeah. I, I read widely and voraciously. I talk to people a lot. Um, so, you know, mostly I'm at home on my own working. But if I'm out and about, you know, I'll ask people about their jobs, about their lives. Um, and, um, you know, if a friend tells me something and I sort of sniff a story, I immediately ask permission to use that. Um, and I mostly just apply the kind of what if to it, because often the, the little nugget that I'm hearing about is not that big a deal or not that unusual. But I sort of say to myself, like, oh, what if that happened and, and there were worse consequences? So, OK, a tiny example. I was in a, I was in a shop once um, browsing rather loose dresses um, and uh, an old man beside me kind of nodded and smiled at me, and I nodded and smiled back, and then I suddenly realized this was maternity wear. And he was basically going, good luck with your pregnancy. You know, and that's all that happened, like, no big deal. But I thought, oh, what if the me character got caught up in that lie and met that old man regularly week after week and pretended to be pregnant? You know, I, so I just, I, I spun a more elaborate lie and a more elaborate yarn out of it. And I would say that's just a matter of, of habit. If you If you sort of think up ideas regularly and you, you spin yarns regularly and you say what if. And mm. these are all fruitful habits. Um, and I write everything down. You know, I don't, I don't try and remember any of these things. I, you know, if you have if a get book, an idea. You have a book. Well, I've, I have little notes on my phone. So on my mm. phone, there'd be 20 different files. And so, you know, if something interesting happens tonight, I'll, I'll put it straight in. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe in 10 years' time, I might use it. And Emma, does it always come with a whoosh? No, no, some of them are more like a little bit there and a little bit there, and oh, if you put those three together, it might make something interesting. So no, they're not always, they're not always a, big, a big whoosh. Yeah. Um, but you know, like any muscle, if you use it regularly, it gets stronger. Mm. Um, and um, a friend of mine who's a graphic designer, in fact, who did the, the cover for the book, and she also made some of the photographs inside it, um, she was saying that 
she's taught herself never to do a little drawing for the client because the client will think, oh, that was just two minutes work, but really it's 20 years of preparation so yeah. that you can do the two minutes work. Yeah. So yeah, you just, I suppose I've, I've, I've mm. got very good at listening out for these ideas. Yeah. And of course they're not all good ones. So, you know, I may have had this kind of oh, experience many times and then sometimes I'll realize afterwards, okay, that one, that one's not going anywhere. Um, but at least I'm, I'm good at kind of, you know, snatching them out of the air to start with. So we have time for one more question. We'll just take right there. Yes. With the glasses. Yep, you. Yep. So in, in writing the seven drafts of my first novel, did I ever think, no, I'm just not going to do this. No, because I really enjoyed the process of the writing. You know, uh, writers aren't just hoping to someday have a published book. Usually they're finding the process gratifying. I mean, in the case of some writers, it's mm. traumatic as well, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's an itch they need to scratch. Mm. Um, so, so usually you're a writer because, you know, there's something about the putting of words together that satisfies you or at least compels you. Um, so, so no, in those seven drafts, you know, I may have had moments of despair. Um, I remember my agent, you know, getting lots and lots of refusals and people who would say it's like talented but not talented enough. Um, so, so I definitely felt gloomy at times, but I never lost interest in the rewriting process. And I still, I love being edited. I love the way I think I've mm. done everything I can to a book and then, and then the editors ask just the right questions and suddenly I, I, see, I see room for major improvements. Or even just being away from the book for a couple of months, you can come back and suddenly... It's blindingly obvious to you that there's a major flaw. Um, so, I, yeah, I just love that, you know, endless return mm. to the story to try and, you know, I think it was Michelangelo who described it as like you cut everything away that isn't the statue, you know. Yeah. Which, again, is like that kind of, you know, little mental trick of, of pretending the story is a real thing and you're just trying to get to it. So often it doesn't feel like you're making it up. It feels like you're just clearing away everything that's not the story. Do you think that's true? I mean, do you think that the story is in some way already there? It does feel that way to me, yeah. And it certainly feels as if these characters... I mean, I, I know I have made them up. I can even... I could tell you about the process of making them up and deciding... Like, say, with, with Noah, I decided I wanted him to be a, a scientist because I wanted him to have a particularly kind of unsentimental attitude to life and death and so on. I didn't, didn't want him to be a literary type moping around Europe quoting poetry, you know? Mm. I wanted him to be very kind of rigorous. So I thought, science... And then I thought, okay, I can't do physics. I can't get any anecdotes out of physics. It's just too hard science-y. But biology would be too obviously cuddly. Like, oh, my great nephew, let me tell you about the web of life. You right. know? And so I thought, okay, chemistry mm -hmm. is flavorful and has anecdotes. And actually, there are relationships between elements and the periodic table and so on. So, you know, it can be relevant in some way, but it'll still have that slightly hard science feel. So put it that way. I remember... I remember making that decision about Noah, but now that I have made him, it seems like he just is that guy, and he is a chemist. Yes. So he couldn't have been anything else now. It's a so maybe business. you did. So maybe you did uncover him. Maybe. I mean, put it this yeah. way: once the statue is polished, then you 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 could no longer make it a different shape. Yeah. Well, it's been just so. I mean, we could sit here and listen for a, a lot longer, right, people? My pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. yeah. So. Um. 
I think out of this, we do feel like we have a lot of tips on how to move forward if we're writers. We also have some courage, don't we, people? Because this level of creativity just makes us feel better about being human. <laughs> so Emma's going to be at the back signing books, and uh, don't forget to buy a book, and don't forget to fill out your feedback form because every single one is read. And thank you so much for being such a great audience. You've been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. You can find Emma Donahue's book, Akin, wherever books or audiobooks are sold, including through the Vancouver Writers' Fest's Libro.fm store. To hear more events like this one, please visit our website at writersfest.bc.ca.